You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Uh, truly, it is good to be gathered to worship our God and Savior. And uh, we're going to take a pause this morning from our study in the book of Acts. And Pastor Keith has asked me to teach on the topic of baptism. Uh, last week, he preached a message on the 3,000 people that were baptized. And so we're just going to pause and think through together, kind of meditate on this aspect of what baptism is. And what we're going to see uh, this morning, you see in, the, in your worship guide there, that baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Baptism is a sign or symbol of the new covenant. Now, there are many different signs or symbols uh, all throughout our culture, through society. Uh, if you're like me, you have been maybe tuning in to the Olympic trial races and you've seen the, the ring symbol, the sign there, the five different colored rings interlocked together. Uh, these rings symbolize the coming together, the union of athletes from five different continents around the world, right? They're coming together to compete at the highest level uh, known to humanity at this time. And, and they're united together as they come. That symbol represents that greater reality. Uh, we might, al might also think of uh, another sport, since most of us uh, won't ever participate in the Olympics. Uh, we, we think of our own local sports teams here. I see a few people even representing this morning, the gold, or I'm sorry, the, the red and yellow, not the gold and black. Uh, but, you know, this, uh, the symbols, the logos of our team they highlight, they represent something greater that we stand for, right? We identify ourselves with them. Uh, in Iowa, to be a fan of one or the other is not just a matter of fanfare. It's, it's an identity issue. You know, which side are you on? Who do you belong to? Who do you root for? Another symbol, uh, one on my mind here lately, celebrating an anniversary is a wedding ring. Uh, the symbol of marriage. A wedding ring symbolizes the coming together of two people, two individuals who enter into a covenant relationship where they no longer are, are, are identified just as two people, uh, but now they are one. We even have name changes to, to represent this union, this one flesh relationship. And, and a wedding ring symbolizes that invisible reality. Uh, those who wear a wedding ring, they're declaring, they're displaying publicly that I have been united to my spouse. And so it symbolizes that greater reality. Well, this morning, as we think about baptism, uh, what we're going to see is that it, 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 like these other things, is a symbol, it's a sign pointing to a greater reality, pointing to something uh, invisible that we can't see. And yet this symbol, this sign of baptism is not insignificant. Uh, it has great meaning and value. Now I think there are 
<laughs> two errors that we can fall into when we think about baptism. Uh, one, uh, on the one hand, we can overestimate its value. Okay, so we can, we can think of it in a way that's unbiblical and we can think of it in terms of actually providing salvation. Uh, this is what the Roman Catholic Church does uh, in their practice when they baptize infants. Uh, the teaching is actually that at that moment, salvation comes. There is a regeneration, a new birth, a cleansing away of original sin that takes place. And that child is moved into a state of grace. But, but that's overemphasizing. That's putting too much weight in what the New Testament teaches about baptism. You see, while it does point to that reality, it does not make it happen. We can overestimate it, but I think we can also underestimate its value. We, we can think, you know, since baptism doesn't save us or provide salvation, and really it's the gospel that does that, maybe that's not that important. Maybe you have been around Christians of different denominations that uh, have been divided over this issue. You know, they, they, they have fought over who should we baptize? Is it adults only or infants? Or maybe people have been divided over how. Do we baptize by immersion or by pouring or by sprinkling? And so there's all this division and maybe that's led you to think, well, let's just not deal with baptism. You know, let's do it, yeah, but let's kind of do it off in the corner and just focus on the gospel. My hope this morning is really to uh, fall somewhere in between those two extremes. My hope is that we will see biblically the value of baptism. Because when we read the New Testament, uh, we see that the verb to baptize or the noun baptism is used some 96 times throughout the New Testament and half of those occur in the books of Luke and Acts. And we read verses like 1 Peter 3.21 which says baptism which now saves you. Or we think about uh, what we heard last week in Acts chapter two, verse 38, where on the day of Pentecost, all those people were gathered together, they were cut to the heart, and they said, what must we do to be saved? And do you remember Peter's response? Repent and believe the gospel. Is that what he said? No, he said, repent and be baptized. And so maybe as we look at the New Testament, we, we realize that baptism is a bigger deal than we have often thought. You see, Jesus gave the church just two ordinances, uh, two commands that were to practice on a regular basis, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And each of these symbols points to a significant invisible reality and really demonstrates the gospel itself. And so my hope this morning that as we dig into the topic of baptism, uh, we will see the amazing gift we've been given in this ordinance, in this practice. Not because anything magical happens when we go under the water, but because of what that symbol points to. 
So if you have your uh, worship guide there, you'll see in the notes section, I, I put a definition of baptism. And I wanna read that for us. Baptism is the initiatory ordinance that symbolizes a believer's entrance into the new covenant community, the church, with all its blessings and responsibilities. Now, that's, that's just one definition of baptism. There are others that could be given to flesh out uh, this practice we see in the New Testament. But I want to unpack this one to, to focus on the sign of the new covenant. And I want to do that by asking four questions, and we'll just work our way through them. Why practice baptism is the first one. Second, when should we practice baptism? Third, who should be baptized? And finally, what does baptism symbolize? So let's go ahead and dive into this first question here. Uh, why practice baptism? This is probably the easiest of the questions to answer. I think most of us here, if we've been in the church for some time, uh, could answer this. Uh, it's simply, we practice baptism because Jesus commanded it. So if you look in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, this is uh, what we call the Great Commission. This is where after Jesus had died and been raised on the third day, and before he ascended into heaven, he gave marching orders to the church. Uh, he gave them their mission. This is what they were to be about. And he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So if you look back at that definition I have there, that it's the initiatory ordinance. Uh, that's not a word we typically use, but ordinance is simply another word for command or decree. And, and what we see in Matthew 28 is that Jesus is saying, this is the mission I want you to be on. As you go into the world, as you go and make disciples, I want you to baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit signifying their union, their identification with the triune God. Baptism is a command given by the resurrected and ascended king. So Jesus, as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he, he gives this decree. If you wanna go and make disciples, we have to begin with baptism. It's not an optional task in the process of making disciples. And really this just leads us right into our second question. Uh, when should we baptize uh, people? When should we practice baptism? And again, according to that definition, what we see is that baptism is the initiatory uh, ordinance for the Christian life. If we, if we think back to the Great Commission, this is, this is the first step in making disciples. Uh, notice that 
Jesus commands uh, before you teach people to observe everything, before you go on to obey the rest of my teachings, the first step is baptism. It's initiatory. When we think back to Acts chapter two, on that day of Pentecost, and we remember that uh, Peter commanded them to be baptized. And on that day in verse 41 of Acts chapter two, we see that 3,000 of them were added to their number. 3,000 souls were added. So we might rightly ask, what is it that they were added to? What, what is it that these disciples were actually added to? And the answer, as we're gonna see, is that they were added to the new covenant community, the church. They, they were brought into the household of God. And, and we know that because in verse 42, we're told what they did after baptism. In verse 42, we read that after these new believers were baptized, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. So, so just notice the order, uh, the progression here. Peter preaches the gospel of Christ crucified. Uh, these 3,000 believe, they repent and they're baptized. And then after that, they're brought into participation in the life of the church. They're brought to a place where they take of the Lord's Supper where they sit under God's word, where they pray together. But, but baptism is that initiatory step. Uh, some have said throughout church history that baptism is the door to the church. And again, we wanna be careful with that language because we know baptism isn't what brings us into the church, but, but it does symbolize that. It does point to that reality that when we believe the gospel and are baptized, we have a new identity. We belong to a new community. And so when we think about this question, uh, when should we practice baptism? The answer is uncontested in scripture. We practice it at the beginning of a person's Christian life. This is the pattern we see all through the New Testament. Uh, there is no known unbaptized Christian in the New Testament. Really to be a Christian is to be a baptized disciple of Jesus. And, and as we have uh, lived overseas in different countries and we've interacted with uh, different people, we've seen this understanding of baptism, which is, is very much according to the New Testament, play itself out particularly in countries where believers are persecuted for their faith. Uh, so our friends from China and Iran and Nepal, uh, if you are to ask them, what's, what's the moment you become a target for persecution? Uh, they would say, it's when I was baptized. It's when I, in obedience of faith, followed Jesus and made that public step to follow him. Uh, it, even the government recognizes that that's when somebody visibly displays their allegiance to Jesus. And that's when persecution laws begin to be enacted. And so what we see in the New Testament is that baptism is the initiatory ordinance. Uh, it happens at the beginning. 
And I just want to be so clear here. Uh, baptism is not necessary for salvation, right? I just want to make sure that's very clear. And yet, what we see in the New Testament is that baptism is essential to discipleship. It's that first step. And so this leads us to the third question. Who should be baptized? Uh, when we were living in Malaysia and serving at our international church there, uh, we had many people from countries with this understanding of baptism, that if you want to become a Christian, you need to get baptized. And so we would have visitors come from uh, many closed countries that would say things like, this is my first time coming to a church uh, and I want to be baptized. Can I get baptized? And, and we'd kind of be like, whoa, you know, slow down. Uh, we, we want to make sure you understand who baptism is actually for. We're excited you are interested in following Jesus, but, but let's really walk through what the gospel is and who baptism is for. And what we see in the New Testament is that baptism, this is the next line if you're taking notes, baptism is for those who repent and believe in the gospel. Now, back in Acts 2, uh, Pastor Keith preached a great message last week on repentance and what that looks like. And, and, and we see in Acts 2 that Peter put that as a prerequisite for baptism, that you have to repent, you have to have a change of mind. You have to go from where you treasure your sin and you want that to where you're convicted and grieved and broken and you turn from that and you turn to Jesus. So Peter can say, repent and be baptized. But what I want us to see is that anytime repentance is mentioned in the New Testament, faith is implied. Faith is always implied. And so Peter and the other apostles, they could say things like repent and be baptized, or they could say things like believe and be baptized. And in either case, they're saying essentially the same thing. Let me show you this from Acts 16, uh, verse 31 to 34. One example of this. So in Acts 16, uh, Paul and Silas are in prison for their faith, and they're singing hymns at midnight. They're singing worship songs to God at midnight, and a great earthquake happens to where uh, the prison doors break open. All the prisoners are fleeing and getting away, and so the, the the jailer there is terrified that his superiors are going to find out, you know, that if all these people get escape under his watch, uh, he's, he's done, he's over with. And so he's getting ready to take his own life and Paul and Silas see him and say, wait, stop, don't do it. We're all here, we're safe, you don't need to end your life. And, and the jailer falls down on his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? And then in verse 31, Paul responds to him. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, believe in Jesus. Notice there's no command or call to repentance. He just says, believe and you'll be saved. And we're told in verse 32 that they went into the household, they spoke the word to all of them. So we know that those who were gathered heard the gospel and then they believed and they were baptized. 
So the point I'm making is a very basic one, is that whenever we see repentance in the New Testament, Luke uses these interchangeably. Uh, Where there is repentance, there is faith, right? If you're repenting, you're turning from sin, it's because you believe this king, you believe Jesus, and so you're following him. Repentance and faith are really like two sides of the same coin. They always go together. And so if we think back to our definition there, uh, that one sentence, we saw that baptism is the initiatory ordinance that symbolizes a believer's entrance into the new covenant community. So believers, those who have heard the gospel, who have repented of their sins and put their faith in what Jesus did on the cross, that's who baptism is for. And there are a few implications uh, that follow from this. One is that baptism is for those who are old enough to hear the gospel, uh, to understand it, and to respond in faith and repentance. And that's why here at West Wind Church, uh, we don't baptize infants. uh, Because the pattern we see in the New Testament is that it's for those who have heard the message, they've responded in faith. And maybe you're like me, someone who was uh, baptized as an infant into a church. Uh, I'm thankful for my parents who brought me to that church, who wanted me to learn about God. But as I grew up and realized that I was still in my sin, that I didn't have a relationship with Christ, and I came to faith at the age of 16, uh, and I began to read the New Testament and, and, and others began to show me Uh, you need to take that step of obedience, of baptism. Uh, That when you were baptized as an infant, that wasn't baptism according to what we see in God's word. And so I was uh, joyfully baptized to declare my uh, allegiance to Christ and to declare what he had done for me through the gospel. That's one implication. Another important implication as we've said again and again, is that baptism doesn't save us. If baptism is for those who repent and believe the gospel, that means that you've already received salvation. Uh, Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. And we respond in faith and repentance. But then baptism is that external, visible symbol of what has taken place inwardly spiritually. And really that leads us to our final question. What does baptism symbolize? Uh, We've already hinted at it, but I want us to think about this idea that baptism symbolizes a believer's entrance into the new covenant community, the church. So some of you may be thinking, uh, what is the new covenant community? Uh, was there an old covenant? Is that something we just do here at Westwind? Uh, what is this new covenant and why does it matter? Well, in the Bible, there are several covenants that form the backbone of the storyline of scripture. You see, the Bible is one story about God's plan to save people, to redeem humanity back from their sins and bring them into relationship with him. But this story unfolds through different covenants that God makes with people in history, in time. 
Uh, He makes these covenants and he shows them the blessings and the responsibilities. He lays the ground rules for how he'll relate to them. And oftentimes these covenants have symbols that point to that reality. So we might think of the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah after the flood in Genesis 6. Uh, Does anyone remember what the sign of that covenant is? It's a rainbow, yes. I saw a beautiful one yesterday after the the storm passed through. We had this amazing rainbow came out. And uh, again, just a reminder that God, after bringing judgment, was hanging up his war bow. He promised, I will never judge the world again in that way. Fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 12, and we see God makes another covenant with a man named Abraham. And he gives him a sign of this covenant, the sign of circumcision. Uh, Circumcision for all male children within this ethnic community. Now, now this sign was just for those who were born as Israelites. It was specific to that people. And it signified cutting them apart, setting them apart as God's chosen people. This was something unique. And if you remember, God had promised to Abraham, he said, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you into a new people, give you lots of descendants. And then I'm gonna bring you to a new place, the promised land, where I want you to dwell as my people, a sort of new humanity, a redeemed people that will display to the surrounding nations what it looks like to live as God's people, what it looks like to walk in his commands and to live under his rule and reign. Uh, On the way to the promised land, if you remember, another covenant is made with Moses. And that's... uh, most uh, symbolized or represented by what we think of in the Ten Commandments, these tablets of stone where God wrote his law. This was to be the, the constitution, really, of how God's people as a new kingdom and people would live in this new land. And if we think about what happened as Israel went into that land, Uh, we come to realize that they failed over and over to actually live as God's people. In in fact, they rebelled against his commandments. They said, we wanna worship and serve the idols of surrounding nations rather than serving and worshiping this God who redeemed us out of slavery and made us a people. But God wasn't surprised by this. He, He wasn't caught off guard. In fact, God knew that his people had stubborn hearts. And if we think back to that sign that he gave to the nation of Israel, circumcision, uh, we might rightly ask the question, what did that symbolize? Well, the sign of circumcision was meant to indicate that people were to cut off the sin and stubborn hearts that they had and to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We see this in places like Deuteronomy chapter 10, where God told his people, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stubborn no longer. And so this this physical sign of circumcision was really pointing to a spiritual circumcision. 
It was pointing to this reality that if they were to walk with God, they needed to cut away the sin and sinful and stubborn hearts and submit to God and love God. But Israel failed to do it. They couldn't do it, in fact, because of the sinful nature they had inherited from Adam. And the law was meant to expose and show this. God knew that under the old covenant, there was a problem with the people in it. The covenant was good, but their hearts were stubborn and hard and sinful. And so God in his mercy and love, he sent prophets again and again, yes, to warn them of his discipline and judgment, but also to promise a new covenant. God sent prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and he made this promise, I'm gonna make a new covenant with you, not like the covenant of old that I made with your forefathers because you rebelled against me, but I'm gonna make a new covenant and I'm actually going to cut away and remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to cleanse you with the washing of water and I'm going to forgive your sins and idolatry. I'm gonna pour out my spirit on you and fill you so that you're enabled to obey my commands and delight in my ways. These are the promises we see in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. These promises God made hundreds of years before Jesus came. And all of these promises were going to come to pass through the Messiah. And that's what we've been seeing in the, in the book of Acts, we've seen that Jesus is the promised Messiah. According to Joel 2 and Acts 16, Peter points to these realities to say, he is the one we were waiting for. He is the one who's come to bring the spirit and forgiveness of sins and to inaugurate the new covenant that God had promised. And we see this also in passages like Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 13, where Paul points to the new covenant symbol, baptism, and he explains what took place. And so let me read for us, starting in verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. So we see this amazing reality, this spiritual circumcision of which in the Old Testament, physical circumcision was just pointing ahead toward. But, but that spiritual circumcision that was promised, that was necessary to walk with God, didn't occur until Christ died on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, notice what Paul says. He says, he performed a circumcision of our sinful flesh. That is our hearts of stone our sinful nature, uh, what we inherited from Adam because we were unable to obey God, to walk with him, to love him as we ought to. 
And so Jesus, the Messiah, came to rescue us. Jesus came to perform this operation, not on our physical external bodies, but on our hearts, to cut away our sin and our sinful nature. And he did this by dying on the cross. And so when we think about this fulfillment of the new covenant, what we see is that to to belong to the new covenant is not like the old. It's not something we do physically or externally. It's not a religious rite or activity that brings us into the new covenant people and marks us out as his own, but rather it's something God himself does. Notice again in verse 11, it says, you have been circumcised without hands, a circumcision of putting off the flesh. And in verse 12, we're told that's what baptism symbolizes. That when Jesus died on the cross and was buried, we died with him. And when we go under the water in baptism, we signify our union in his death. And when we come up out of the water, it signifies that we've been made alive in Christ. That Jesus has removed our sinful nature, that he has brought us into this new covenant community, and all the blessings of that covenant belong to us. These blessings include things like the forgiveness of sins. the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a new heart that loves to obey God and is actually able to obey God. And so there's, there's some profound implications for this as we think about it. The first is that baptism is only for those who are regenerated. That, that's, a, that's actually a New Testament word to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit to have the new birth, to be made alive as Christ cuts away your old self and resurrects you spiritually, and then one day physically. These blessings of the new covenant are ours, but they're only for those who have come to Christ, who have repented and believed. But we receive them, and baptism symbolizes these realities. It's a person's public declaration to say, I've been made alive in Christ. I've been brought into this new covenant and I wanna publicly proclaim that, that I am united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. I am part of the new creation, the new humanity, the new people of God he's making and restoring back into his image. And we have this new identity And an amazing symbol to represent that, baptism. So I want to close this morning just by uh, thinking through a few points of application. And and the first is for those of you who might be here or listening at home or online. Uh, The first is for those that would, would be professing believers but are not yet baptized. Those of you who have believed in Christ but haven't been baptized. And and I think there are probably at least two categories of of people uh, that would would fall into this area. The first is someone who's just uninformed 
uh, someone who is new to the Christian faith, someone who maybe hasn't heard God's word taught on baptism. And so maybe some of these things are the, some, some of this this morning is the first time you're hearing about this symbol of baptism, this symbol to declare your allegiance to Jesus and that you've been brought into the new people of God in this new covenant. Uh, if that describes you this morning, uh, that's wonderful that you're exploring this, that you're learning from God's word. We would encourage you to keep doing that. Uh, would also really encourage you to talk to some of the elders here at Westwind Church and to get together with them to think through what baptism is. And uh, in Ju- next month, July 18th, Westwind will have a baptism service where you, uh, if you've repented and believed in Jesus, can participate to declare that you are his. Uh, But the second person I want to address here is not those who are uninformed, but maybe those who are unwilling, uh, unwilling to be baptized. Maybe you've believed the gospel, you've heard it, you've known it, uh, but for whatever reason, you're, you're still resistant to the idea of obeying Jesus to be baptized. And so I just want to exhort you this morning, as, as we've seen in God's word, uh, to be a follower, to be a disciple means you're, you're a follower of Jesus. You're a learner. You, you submit to his commands. And, and as we've seen, baptism is a command he's given us. But really, beyond this idea of simple obedience, which, which is enough, but beyond that, uh, not getting baptized as a, as a Christian is kind of like somebody getting married and saying, you know, I want to get married and I want to do that, but I don't want to do the exchanging of vows. I don't want to have a ceremony. I don't want to wear my wedding ring. And we would probably think, okay, maybe there's some reasons there, but there's something kind of off with that. No, a wedding is something you go into because you love this person. You want to make your commitment known in public. And so if you have been united to Christ through faith in his death and resurrection, don't you want to declare your love and allegiance for Jesus? Don't you want to show that you belong to him and his people? I would encourage you this morning, if, if you're still unwilling to take that step, you may need to ask yourself, what's really going on in my heart? Have I experienced these new covenant blessings? Have I been given this new heart that wants to love God and obey him no matter the cost? Now I wanna talk to those of us who are baptized believers. I I imagine that's probably most of us here this morning. Uh, Most of us who have believed in Jesus, we've been baptized at some point. Um, I want us to to realize and, and think about the fact that our baptism is not just an individual event. It's not just something we do on our own. When we are united to Jesus in, a, in his death and resurrection, we're also united to his people, the church. And with the blessings of the new covenant also come responsibilities. One of those responsibilities is to rightly practice baptism. And when we do that, there are always three parties involved. Again, a new believer never baptizes themselves. We don't see that in the New Testament. It's the church. 
uh, that they're added to. It's the church that declares, yes, we believe you're one of us. You're, You're believing on the same King and Lord and Savior and you belong to us and we're going to publicly affirm and declare that with you. You're one of us. And so I want to encourage you as a local church that as you practice baptism, don't just think of it in individualistic terms. Don't just think of it as that's great. That person wants to follow Jesus. I hope that goes well for them. But no, you as the church community are saying they're one of us. And and we as a family, as a community are committed to helping them grow as a disciple of Christ. We're celebrating this with them. Uh, We are participating in this as the body. See, rightly practicing baptism actually guards the purity of the church because it preserves a clear understanding of the gospel and of conversion and the new birth. And, And so it's so important that we practice it according to the word of God. Well, finally, Secondly, baptism, I want you to remember, for those who have been baptized, is just the initiatory rite, ordinance, right? It's the beginning. It's like when you get married and you put on that ring, that's just the start of your relationship. And now you have a lifetime to uh, deepen that relationship, to show your commitment, to show your love and allegiance, and we see that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter two, of chapter two, verses 42 to 47, we're gonna look at that next week. And we're gonna see that the, these new believers who were baptized devoted themselves to the word of God, to prayer, to fellowship, and to making disciples of all nations. These are the responsibilities that we joyfully get to participate in as God's chosen people. I want to invite the the worship team to begin to make their way up here and we'll close this morning. As I've been watching the uh, Olympic trials, I've seen a number of times participants with the, the Olympic tattoo sign, whether on their arm or their back, And it signifies that they have participated in another Olympics, that they they have made the cut. They've been good enough to be called an Olympian. And and they belong to this elite group of people. Very few are able to be a part of that community. Uh, What an honor, what a privilege that would be to be able to say, uh, you have done that. Uh, When we think about our teams, our sports teams, and our, our t-shirts, our hats, uh, our, our things that symbolize that we belong to that. Uh, it's great to belong to and identify ourselves with that, especially when our team does well, especially when they win a great victory, you know, and we can, we can celebrate that and cheer. And when we think about our wedding rings, uh, for those who are married, We know this points to one of the greatest relationships we'll ever experience here on earth. But baptism is so much greater than all these things. Baptism and what it signifies, that that it points to this reality that our sins are forgiven, 
that we are in a covenant relationship with a God who will be faithful with us and to us until the end, there is no more glorious symbol on earth to celebrate as God's people. And so I pray that we would be those who esteem this symbol and what it represents and that we would be faithful followers of Jesus as we're baptized and we help others be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you have promised us these new covenant blessings and that you have secured them for us through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, we just are reminded this morning that we have the forgiveness of sins. We have your spirit poured out into us. We have new hearts and new life and a new family that we belong to and will be with for all eternity. Lord, would you help us to understand how valuable this symbol is you've given us to celebrate it rightly or not to overestimate it or underestimate it, but to practice it according to your word, to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus and to give you praise and glory. Lord, we thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.